Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, I got a question from Mac who writes, Hi Frank, I wanted to ask you a question that has troubled a lot of my family. My fiance's cousin died in a car accident almost a year ago. He was a Christian and a true believer. He was killed in a head-on crash on the interstate and the guy was driving on the wrong side of the road. My father-in-law's question, why? Why was Lucas killed? My father-in-law is a believer of 40 years. He just does not believe that Lucas's time, being only 20 years old, that it was his time. He also does not believe that God, with the saying that, quote, God was ready to take him and it was his time to go. He said that he cannot find answers in Scripture to understand why this tragedy would happen. I told him what you say about the domino effect and something good will come from the tragedy, but he still wants to know why. He also wonders, too, why God doesn't let people with cancer who are believers suffer. Why does God let people who are uh, uh, people have cancer who are believers suffer? He wants scriptural answers, and I thought I would reach out to you and ask, so if you could please help me with this issue, that would be greatly appreciated. So this is one question we're going to delve into a little bit today. We also have questions on abortion, questions on how do we know what we know, and Frank, you keep saying Jeremiah 29, 11 is not a promise to Christians in the 21st century. Well, what, what does apply from the Old Testament? That question as well. So let's go back to what Mac said. And this is a long answer. In fact, I, I wrote back to Mac via email, and I said, actually, we covered that whole question in a chapter in the book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. Some questions require a lot longer than what you can say in an email or what you can even say here on radio or a podcast. So this is going to be a short answer. But the longer answer is in uh, the chapter in Stealing from God on Evil. Well, whenever you get a question like this, you always have to decipher whether you are dealing with a pastoral issue or a philosophical issue. Do you want to give the pastoral answer or the philosophical answer? Now, it seems that the father-in-law that Mac writes about needs more of a pastor than he needs a philosopher. It's really hard to deal with evil from a philosophical perspective when you're hurting. In fact, the best time to get answers to questions like this is before you need them. Get prepared because everybody's going to experience evil, pain, and suffering at some point. You might as well do your research now because when the rawness of the event actually occurs, when you lose a loved one like this, um, you can be despondent for days, weeks, months, maybe even years if you're not prepared. It's the old adage, when's the best time to get a friend? before you need one. When is the best time to get answers to the problem of evil? Before you go through it. Now, I'm just going to give the philosophical answer here because I'm not a pastor, number one, and uh, I don't have a, a, an opportunity to interact with Mac's father-in-law. 
But I guess a question I would ask people is, does God promise all believers that they will live long, healthy lives? Well, of course not. It, it almost seems like it's an assumption that if you're a believer, you're going to live a long, healthy life. In fact, some of this may be a hangover from the Old Testament, Old Covenant, that we actually think that we're promised health and wealth to a certain extent. Now, that isn't completely the case in the Old Testament, but there are elements of it. I'm thinking of Malachi, you know, bring your, bring your tithe to the temple and your, your barns will overflow, that kind of promise. Um, that was an Old Covenant concept. It's not a promise in the New Covenant, although God may prosper you, obviously, but it's not a promise. And people die young. Sometimes they're believers that die young. I mean, did Jesus and the apostles live long, healthy lives? No, the opposite. In fact, Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And he said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And Paul said, anyone who lives a faithful life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we should expect that we're going to have trouble in this life, and we need to take an eternal perspective. In fact, Paul actually ends a brilliant section on pain and suffering in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he says our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a great, are achieving for us a greater weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, for what is seen is temporary. We fix our eyes on what is unseen, for what is unseen is eternal. This life is not the end-all, be-all. There will be things that happen in this life that are not only inexplicable, um, but will test your faith. But if you realize your faith is not dependent on everything being explained or is not dependent on you understanding why certain things occur, then when you go through a difficulty like this, at least you won't say, well, God has broken his promise. In fact, God has never promised us that we would live to 80 years old. He never promised us that we wouldn't be, we wouldn't have difficulty. He promised the opposite, that we would have difficulty. So Paul says that our light and momentary afflictions, meaning the, the difficulties we go through here on earth, will actually achieve a greater weight of glory in eternity. And what he means by that, I believe, is that when you go through difficulty, you enhance your capacity to enjoy God, not only now, but in eternity. When, when you really go through difficulty and achieve something, that achievement is worth more because of the difficulty you went through. I always use the analogy of sports, you know. If a, if a player is maligned, but then somehow fights through all the adversity and wins the Super Bowl, uh, he felt better about winning the Super Bowl because he went through all the difficulty. That, that quarterback, say, who wins the MVP award in the Super Bowl, feels a whole lot better than the third-string quarterback who is on the Super Bowl-winning team but didn't play a down all year. Why? Because the first-string quarterback went through all the difficulty, which made the victory all that much sweeter. And it seems like Paul is saying something similar when it comes to real life here. We have to keep an eternal perspective. Difficulty brings forth an enhanced capacity to enjoy God and enjoy the reward, uh, and enjoy the reward, I should say. Now, 
there's another aspect to this, and that is the ripple effect. In fact, you you mentioned it in the in the question, Mac. You said the domino effect. I prefer the ripple effect because things ripple forward. Every event that occurs in this life ripples forward to affect trillions of other events in this life. Some of them way down the road. Can I answer you why, tragically, Lucas was killed in a car accident? Do I know what the ripple effect will give me? No, I don't. I don't know what's going to happen with the ripple effect, but I know why I don't know why. I'm inside of time. God is outside of time. He can see how this is all going to work out in the end. We can't. You say, why doesn't God explain it to us? Well, two things. Let me, let me point this out. Let's suppose God were to say, one of the reasons or one of the goods that comes out of someone dying now is going to bring forth a great evangelist 500 years from now that saves millions of people. Partially responsible, or the, the death today was partially responsible for the evangelist that, arised, or that arises 500 years from now. Okay, I can see that's a good thing, that good has come out of this tragedy. But does that make me feel any better right now? No, not really. Okay, great. 500 years from now, people are going to be saved because my cousin died or my son died. Okay. It doesn't really take away much of the pain, does it? No. <laughs> it doesn't really take away much of the pain. And the second aspect is, if God told us what good would come from every difficulty we experienced, that might change our behavior in a way that wouldn't precipitate the good that was supposed to come from it. So, to a certain extent, it might be he has to leave us in the dark so the actual good event will come to fruition. And we explain this in the evil chapter, the evil chapter, the evil chapter, in Stealing from God. So if you want to go further, please get that. And uh, by the way, there's another good thing that comes out of evil. It's that people step up and actually help others. People are actually blessed when they have to and they decide to step up and help others through difficulty, through pain and suffering. Those of you watching on YouTube uh, or see the video, I'm wearing a hat right now. This is from the Billy Graham Association. This is their law enforcement hat. And I'm wearing a shirt from uh, Samaritan's Purse. I just had the privilege of speaking to Samaritan's Purse about a month ago down in Orlando. I love that organization. We personally give to it because wherever there's difficulty, Samaritan's Purse shows up and helps people with their physical needs and also their spiritual needs. You know, right now they're down in Mississippi and other places that have experienced these awful tornadoes. As soon as there's a problem, Samaritan's Purse is there. It The difficulty that we, ex that we experience in this world gives people an opportunity to actually enhance their capacity to enjoy God later. It actually causes us to learn obedience through suffering. So there are many good things that come out of evil. We can't unpack them all here on this program, but one of them is it forces us to consider what's really important in life, and it also prompts us to help others in their greatest period of need. Another thing that happened this week, I want to tell you about a a friend of mine was telling me that his adult daughter uh, is a Christian who's dating a Jewish guy. But this Jewish guy said that he would convert to Christianity to marry her. Now, that seems to me <laughs> to be an example of what people think about religion. They think religion is just a preference. It's a functional view of religion. In other words, 
If it works for you, you believe it. If it'll get me the girl, I'll believe whatever you want. Okay? It's not a true or false proposition that this religion is true and this religion is false or this set of beliefs is true and this set of beliefs is false. It's just functional. That's how people think. It would be really odd if I had a daughter and she's dating, she's a Christian, but she's dating a non-Christian. First of all, she shouldn't be doing that against according to the scriptures, but if she's doing it and the guy comes to me and says, hey, uh, yeah, I'm willing to uh, marry your daughter or I'm willing to become a Christian to marry your daughter, I'd go, wait a minute, do you, do you really understand what Christianity is? It's, it's, it's not just a good idea, okay? It's, it's not just something you use as a means to an end. It's either true or it's false. And if it's true, you ought to be a Christian because it's true. If it's false, you shouldn't be a Christian just to marry my daughter. You should learn, out, you should learn what is true. And in fact, this isn't actually a Jewish mindset, but a secular mindset. An Orthodox Jew would never say, I'm willing to convert to Christianity to marry somebody. An Orthodox Jew should be someone who would say, the only way I'm converting to Christianity is if Jesus really is the Messiah, if he really is God. So it seems to me that people today are much more interested in meology than theology. I'll just say or believe anything to get what I really want. This is just a form of idolatry, ladies and gentlemen. That's what it is. And our friend Natasha Crane, who wrote the great little book, uh, Faithfully Different, expresses what the main secular mindset is. What's the main secular mindset? Four things, she says. Listen to this, because I think she's spot on. I've mentioned this on the program before. In fact, we've had Natasha on. Here, here's the, the four major beliefs of the secular mindset. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Number two, feelings are the ultimate guide. Number three, judgment is the ultimate sin. And number four, God is the ultimate guess. G-U-E-S-S. -S. We don't know if God exists or not, but if, you know, if he exists for you, great. You believe it. Just don't impose your, those beliefs on me, that kind of thing, right? Now think about this. If happiness is the ultimate goal and feelings are the ultimate guide, then judgment's the ultimate sin because you can't, you're not supposed to tell me I can't be happy. You're not supposed to tell me that uh, you know, I can't do something. If it makes me happy, that's the ultimate goal. And if God is the ultimate guess, then religion just becomes functional. Religion is just whatever's going whatever's to work for you, whatever's going to make your life better, whatever's going to help you achieve your goals. Not that there is a God who created the universe and sustains the universe and created you and sustains you and literally added flesh to his deity to come to earth and die a brutal death so you wouldn't be judged for the evil you've done. No, 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 that's not the truth. The truth is whatever gets you where you want to go, you just do you. That's what people think about religion today. Anyway, it was just an observation. When my friend said that, I go, that's really an odd way. <laughs> An odd way to think about Christianity. Oh, yeah, if it'll get me the girl, I'll believe it. By the way, Natasha Crane is going to join me and Elisa Childers at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, for our second uh, Unshaken Conference on May 6th. If you want tickets, go to unshakenconference.com. Check it there. Unshakenconference.com. You'll see the issues we'll be covering there. It's all day Saturday. And then I'll be speaking with my friend and pastor, uh, the great Jack Hibbs, who's the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, Lord willing, on May 7th. But you have to get tickets to the Unshaken Conference, May 6th. Go to unshakenconference.com 
in order to get those tickets. That is coming up on May 6th. Also want to point out that this weekend, I will be, where am I going to be? I'm going to be in Pennsylvania at uh, Calvary Chapel, Lebanon. That's going to be April 16th, Sunday morning services and Sunday night. We're doing I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist and taking questions Sunday night as well. So uh, check all that out on our website, crossexamine.org, crossexamine with a D on the end of it. And that'll be at Freedom Life Church in Christina, Pennsylvania, April 30th. And then, of course, we will be at Calvary Chapel Chino Hills on May 6th and May 7th. Okay, another question has come in from Nikos, who says, how would you, re- how would you uh, reply to a, um, a government official who wrote me back saying this, making a decision regarding abortion can be extremely difficult, and I believe that we must do all we can to support women to make an informed decision, taking into consideration all their options with medical professionals offering impartial advice. Okay, here's my advice back. Abortion is not difficult. It let me put it another way. Abortion is not diff- difficult morally. It's difficult emotionally. Morally, that's a human being. We know that. It's, there, there, there's, there's no debate over it, or there shouldn't be a debate over it, because we know from a, from a scientific perspective, that's a human being in the womb. There's uh, a human being that has its own blood type, its own DNA, its own body, it's not the body of the, of the mother. It's a body being formed in the body of the mother. It's got its own sex, its own biology. Obviously, it's a human being. It's not a squirrel. There's not a rabbit in there. There's not an aardvark in there. There's a human being in there. And so when a politician writes, this can be extremely, yeah, it can be extremely difficult, but that doesn't mean there's not a right decision that needs to be made, and that is to protect the life of the human being in the womb. That's what we ought to be doing. I mean, you could make take this same language and turn it into, or you, you use another uh, issue to realize or to illustrate how silly it is to say what this guy said. Making a decision regarding slavery can be extremely difficult, and I believe we must do all we can to support slave owners to make an informed decision, taking into consideration all their options with medical professionals offering impartial advice. How, how would that sound? would be stupid, okay? It's a human being. Yes, it's emotionally hard, but you know what's even more emotionally hard? Killing your child and learning about it years later and going, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That's more emotionally hard. It'd be much better if you don't want the child to give the child up for adoption. There's twice as many people wanting to adopt children as there are people giving children up for adoption. So the child would have a home. And with that, Jim from West Virginia writes in and says, Frank, I really enjoy your show. Thank you for all you do. I had a thought about those who make the claim that abortion should be legal because it is the woman's body. What about the what about a surrogate mother? He writes, if a fertilized egg is placed into her her womb, whose body is it? Who would have the right to abort a child in this scenario? Just a thought that may help those who see the baby as the woman's body. Yes. Good insight, Jim. In fact, it's been said this way. If you if let's just uh, use different ethnic groups. 
If you take a white fertilized ovum and implant that white ovum, uh, fertilized ovum, into a black woman, a black mother, a black surrogate mother, what kind of baby are you going to have? A black baby or a white baby? You're going to have a white baby. Why? Because it's a the the body of the baby is white. The white fertilized ovum. Likewise, if you take a black fertilized ovum and put it in a white mother, you're going to have a black baby. Because the baby has its own body. The baby has its own DNA. The baby has its own blood type. The baby has its own sex. So, yes, it's not the body of the mother. It's the body of the baby. And, of course, a mother has the right to do what she wants within limits to her body, but not if she kills another body in the process. Now, if any of you think that there's not a human being in the womb, I double-dog dare you to go to caseforlife.com and watch the one-minute-and-seven-second video on that homepage. One-minute-and-seven-second video on that homepage, caseforlife.com. It's the website of my friend Scott Klusendorf, who actually teaches an online course for us at onlinechristiancourses.com. And if you take a look at that video, I think you're going to realize, without any doubt, there is a human being with its own body in the womb of a mother. All right, finally, Sean writes in and says, Jeremiah 29, 11 to 12 isn't written to the church. I get it. So how do you make application of it? You do not seem to explain that part in your talks. Okay, well, when I'm pointing out how to interpret the Bible, uh, Sean, just in a fleeting manner, I'm not going to go into uh, all the details of a particular passage. I'm just pointing out that whenever you come across a passage, you ought to stop. That's the acronym. It's part of our course, How to Interpret the Bible, S-T-O-P. S stands for what's the situation. T stands for what type of literature is it. O stands for who's the object of the passage. And P stands for is this prescriptive or descriptive. And when you look at Jeremiah 29, 11, the situation is uh, this is a letter written to the exiles that went to Babylon in 586 B.C., and it's a letter from God through Jeremiah. The type of literature, it's prophecy. The object are the people that went to Babylon, not 21st century Christians. And the P is this prescriptive or descriptive. It's prescriptive for the people that went to Babylon. It's descriptive for the rest of us because we're not the ones to whom this letter is written. So he says, how does this apply to us? Well, it applies to us because it shows us the character of God that he's going to take care of his people, number one. At least he, he did here in the Old Testament and that he was going to bring them back to the land. Secondly, it also shows you how God got the promised people in the promised land to bring forth the promised Messiah. Because, you know, the Old Testament is really just tracing the bloodline of the Messiah uh, from all the way from Adam, uh, eventually landing at Jesus. It's tracing that one bloodline. It's really the story of how the Messiah gets to us. And so that is applicable knowledge for us, even if they aren't promises to us. See, it applies to our life in the sense that it tells us something about God and how he works, but it's not a promise to us when he says, I'm going to promise these exiles 70 years from now to actually prosper them back in Judah uh, after they are brought back there, after I bring them back here. Just like it's not a promise to us when he tells the exiles that went to Egypt in Jeremiah 44, 11, that he's going to destroy them. 
Thankfully, that's not a promise to us. Nobody claims that. You don't see that stitched into a pillow. You don't see that on a poster. You don't see that on a coffee mug. I will destroy you in old Judah. You don't see that on a birthday card. That's so sweet, Grandma. Thank you so much. No. We've got to stop taking, we got to stop taking stuff out of context. And then he goes on, Sean says, also, prosperity scriptures in the Old Testament aren't written to 21st century Christians. Great. Yet I'm nearly certain, sir, you are prosperous. You aren't living in a ghetto in an efficiency eating ramen noodles, are you? No, I'm not. But you're, what, what, what you're doing here, Sean, is you're, you're, again, you're assuming that God has promised prosperity to all Christians, and he hasn't. Just because some Christians are prosperous, and just about all of us living in America are, compared to the world, doesn't mean that God has promised every Christian prosperity. What I'm saying here is the Old Testament is not a promise to Christians. Or let me put it another way. Not the Old Testament. The Old Covenant is not a promise to Christians. We have a new and better covenant, according to the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says the Old Covenant is obsolete, Hebrews 13, 8. So when you go to Malachi 3 and it says, bring your tithe to the storeroom, or bring, sorry, bring your tithe to the temple and your barns will overflow. That's an old covenant promise. It's not a, a promise to us today. No, I'm not saying that God might not do that for you, that God might not. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I'm using a double negative here. God still may pro prosper you, but it's not a promise. That's all I'm saying. In fact, God says that all good things come from him. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul says that God gives us all things richly to enjoy. Yes, I'm admitting that any prosperity I have comes from God. It comes from his grace. Okay, but it's not a promise. He doesn't promise all financial prosperity or good health. And, and the problem with the prosperity gospel people is they take promises from the old covenant and try and make them promises in the new covenant. And that's illegitimate. Now, there's a lot in the Old Testament that, that is applicable to us and is instructive to us. For example, the whole book of Proverbs, right? Those are not promises, by the way. They are probabilities. Live your life this way, and chances are it's going to turn out better for you than if you don't. Of course, uh, many of the Psalms. The Psalms are prayers, most of them. Most of the Bible is God talking to us. Psalms are us talking to God. And there are several passages in the Old Testament that are repeated in the New Testament. And they are binding on us, like, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. Okay? But one thing that does not appear to be taught very much in circles, Christian circles, is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And we need to start teaching people about that because it can lead people down the wrong road. In fact, I was out of high school this week young girl came up to me. She's about to go to college. She said, how can I make sure that I don't fall into the prosperity gospel? <laughs> when she went, when she's going to college, she's, she's worried about getting involved in the prosperity gospel. I said, yeah, that's very astute of you because a lot of people have a belief in God that isn't the true God. And then when he doesn't promise, when this false God doesn't promise what you think he ought to promise, unfortunately, some people will go, Oh, God doesn't exist then. No, the God you invented in your mind doesn't exist. The true God exists, and he never promised you prosperity. He may give it to you out of his grace, but he didn't promise it to you. And to whom much is given, much will be required, by the way. That principle is a scary principle, because we Christians, 
especially in America, we've been given a lot. All right, one more question uh, that comes from, I don't even know who this comes from, but anyway, it says, I recently stumbled across one of your videos where you were debating Michael Shermer. In the Q&A, one of the audience members asked you about morality, and you pointed out the distinction between moral epistemology and moral ontology, and you also showed a slide with a graph indicating the order of the disciplines. And he's asking me, where did I get that graph? You can get the book by Tom Howe called Objectivity in Interpretation. Objectivity in Biblical Interpretation, I should say. Objectivity in Biblical Interpretation. It's a real thick tome. Thomas Howe is a professor here at Southern Evangelical Seminary, ses.edu. By the way, those of you who want to go to seminary, that's where you go. And if you want a you want to apply for a scholarship, just go to ses.edu forward slash Frank. Now, let me make a uh, point about the difference between ontology and epistemology. And this is what so many uh, atheists in particular confuse. When you say that you can't justify right and wrong without God, they'll say stuff like, are you telling me I can't be a good person? Are you telling me I don't know right from wrong? No, I'm not telling you that. That's not my argument. My argument is not that you can't do good things. My argument is not that you, you don't know good things or you don't know right from wrong. My argument is that you can't justify what good things are unless God exists. You can't justify uh, what morality is without God existing. And that's important. And this is the difference between ontology and epistemology. Ontology is the study of the thing that you are trying to explain. What is ultimate being? Why does the moral law exist then? Epistemology is how you know the moral law exists. How do you know right from wrong? Those are two different things. And atheists often confuse how they know right and wrong with right and wrong itself, this moral standard. Let me give you an illustration. Maybe, maybe this will communicate it uh, better than how I'm trying to explain it otherwise. Suppose you're driving down the highway. You see a sign. It says uh, speed limit 55, right? You can know what that sign means and deny there's a traffic authority, deny there's cops, deny there's a government, right? You can read it. It says 55 miles an hour. That's epistemology. You can just look at it and go, yep, 55 miles an hour. But there would be no sign on that road unless there was a traffic authority, unless there was a government, unless there were police officers. You see, knowing it is epistemology. That it exists is ontology. You can know the speed limit and deny, deny there's a traffic authority. There just would be no speed limit to know unless there was a traffic authority. Do you see what I'm saying here? Knowing it is one thing, and then explaining why it exists to begin with is another. When, when we're making the case with atheists, I'm not arguing over epistemology. You, you can know right and wrong in several different ways because God has written it on your heart, because you read it in the Bible, because your society had it right and was teaching it you rightly, your grandmother told you, whatever, okay? That's epistemology, but that murder's wrong? That's only really wrong if a moral standard outside of ourselves that we're obligated to obey exists, and that is God's nature. If God doesn't exist, everything's a matter of opinion. There's no right and wrong. There are no rights. Everything's just a matter of opinion. And we know in our hearts that's not true. Murder's not a matter of opinion. It's not just a matter of opinion that you can go into a school and shoot nine-year-olds. 
That's really wrong. That's really wrong. Something must be really right that we're obligated to obey. And that is God's nature, ladies and gentlemen. All right, check out our website, crossexamine.org. That's crossexamine with a D on the end of it, .org. Also, check our calendar. We're going to be at several places in the coming, in the coming months, um, including uh, tonight. I'm at uh, Louisiana Tech University. If you're anywhere in, in Louisiana, you can come by. You can also see it on our YouTube channel, Streaming. Uh, and then I will be at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon, Pennsylvania this weekend. A couple weekends I'll be in another uh, church, Freedom Church in Christina, Pennsylvania. Then I'll be out with the great Jack Hibbs, along with Elisa Childers and Natasha Crane at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills for the Unshaken Conference, May 6th, and the morning service, May 7th. Great being with you. See you next time.